Well, good morning. It's great to see everybody. And, um, you know, it is, it's a little bit weird. Cody kind of introduced me uh, a few minutes ago. And, and I know we've got some folks who are, are new today, um, but I look out and I see a bunch of faces that I don't necessarily know. And the reason that it's weird is because typically I can look out and say, hey, that's somebody who's here for the very first time. But the reality is today we have some folks who are here for the first time, met on the way in. Um, but we also have some folks who could have been here like eight or nine times and are absolutely regular attenders at this point and are wondering, who is that weird guy that's now up there? Those of you who are here for the first time are wondering, why is that weird guy who is now up there talking about this? So I've been on sabbatical for the last um, nine weeks, I think it's eight Sundays. And so uh, it's good to be back. Um, it was a great summer, uh, and so I appreciate our elders and you all in allowing me to do that. I'll, I'll tell you, because people have asked you know, how, how were things and stuff like that. The biggest thing um, for me that our, the, the sabbatical did is allow me to, to be a dad. Um, now, it's not like I'm not that when I'm here on Sundays, but like over the, the last eight weeks, like that was my primary focus. And so I got a chance to follow my son around. Uh, the country this summer as he played baseball, which is like, I mean, for me, that's one of the, the greatest things that I could do. And so we had a lot of fun together this summer. Um, but yet at the same time, I'm, I'm glad to be back, uh, to get life back to normal. Um, because some of you n- know me, I'm disciplined and structured in the last eight weeks have been very undisciplined and unstructured with all kinds of different you know, things that are happening and stuff like that. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to, to getting things back to normal this week as the, the kids go back to school. And very much today is a, a rip the Band-Aid off Sunday. Um, we pulled into the driveway at 3 a.m. Um, and so uh, that wasn't planned. It was, you know, flight delays and things like that. But, you know, I'm here. I, I said at the, at the first service, I don't know if a pastor has ever fallen asleep in their own message before, um, but there's that potential this morning. It, it didn't happen in the first service, so we'll see what happens here. But let me just say this. If I haven't met you yet, I would love to do so, to be able to introduce myself to you. Um, and so I'll be available uh, after the service. I'll kind of head out, uh, out there somewhere, because we we've got our big table out there, which Melissa will talk about at the end of the service. But I'll, I'll be out there, and we'd love to have you uh, introduce yourself. If you have questions about the church or anything that you hear, uh, would would love to answer those questions. We always want you to feel free to ask questions and so maybe uh, you could just stop by real fast and introduce yourself and say, hey, I've been here like seven times now, glad that you're back, um, and so th- that would be wonderful. So anyway, let me pray for us, and then we'll get into uh, the new series that we're beginning today. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks so much for just the ability to gather together today, the privilege of being able to gather together and, and to sing praise to you. God, we recognize who you are, the, the creator of heaven and earth We recognize today that our lives are in your hands. God, when our sin separated us from you, that's all the the wrong things that we've done. And and just who we are in our sinfulness, it separated us from you. But you pursued us with your love and your grace. And you sent your one and only son, Jesus, who laid down his life for us. So that by faith in him, we could come into a relationship with you that should change everything about us and last forever. God, as we gather together today in this room, or maybe some folks online who are watching, maybe there's somebody who hasn't yet taken that step across that line of faith, and God, well, we're talking about something different today. Um, Maybe through the work of your Holy Spirit, you would draw them to yourself so that they would say yes to you and experience the life that you've given to us. And so, Father, as we think about your word today, pray that you would uh, just still our hearts, quiet our hearts so that we can hear from you. 
um, and, and learn the things that you would have for us and help us to have the courage to take the step and apply them um, so that we can be the people that you desire us to be and live the life that you desire us to experience because we recognize, God, I believe that that life is the best life that we could ever live. Um, so just continue to meet with us, have your presence with us today, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I want you to think about something with me really quickly. What makes a great team? What makes a great team? Now, I'm going to just preface all that I'm going to say with this. I'm going to talk about sports this morning. I, I love sports. I know some of you probably don't care about sports, but since I've been gone a long time, I want to talk about what I want to talk about today, and so I want to start by talking about sports. And in fact, in this series that we're starting, you can see from the graphic, it has a, a sports theme to it, so we'll hit on sports a lot uh, over the next couple of weeks. And so again, if you're not in, into sports at all, just bear with me, especially at the beginning of messages. I promise it will all make sense in the end. Um, but I want you to think about team. What makes a great team? Think about this. If you were the general manager of a team, and so your job is to put the best team together that you possibly can, how would you go about doing that? What makes a great team? If you were the general manager of an NBA team, a basketball team, probably the first thing that you would think is, we got to have a superstar. You cannot win without a superstar. And the reality is once you get one superstar, you really need two. But the truth is if you had a big three, then you're really good. If you just have a big three, it almost doesn't matter who else is on the team because you can fill in the gaps and create something that's, that's a good. And so maybe that's what it is that makes a great team. It's a superstar. As I mentioned earlier, we are starting a new series of messages today. It's called Church as a Team Sport. And so we're using that team language to think about the church a little bit as a, as a metaphor. You know, the truth is that there are some churches who follow that idea. And the church is built off of a superstar. If we just have a superstar, that's what we need to be successful because people will show up, people's lives will be changed as a result of that superstar. And so then the church is built off of one single person. And that single person might be the main teacher in that church, or it could even be a worship leader or something like that. But it's built off of one single person. Now, the interesting thing about that is from a distance, that can look really successful. Because people will show up to come see a superstar. But I have done a lot of reading about church health, done my own personal study on what makes churches healthy. And I want you to know, churches that are built off of one single, single person, that is not healthy. In fact, I could give you example after example, though churches do this a lot, I could give you example after example of churches that were built off of that model. They had that one superstar thinking that they were successful, and then for different reasons, the superstar falls, and then the damage that resulted from that. See, I don't think a church is like a basketball team. There's just not enough players. But maybe the church is more like a baseball team. It's like building a baseball team. Baseball is my favorite sport. And team building, what it takes to build a great team in baseball, I think is really, really fascinating because it's so much harder than it is in every other sport. And so maybe building a great team, it's like building a great baseball team. So how would you build a baseball team? Well, you might think initially, well, we have to have a superstar. That's what it takes to win. We have to have a superstar or maybe two. Well, today in Major League Baseball, 
the best player, arguably, is Shohei Otani. In fact, he's probably putting up the greatest statistical season that's ever been seen. Because Shohei Otani is an incredible power hitter, as well as being one of the best pitchers in Major League Baseball. And he plays for the Anaheim Angels, so that is one superstar. You might think, well, it takes more than one player on a baseball team because you have so many more people that are involved. So maybe it takes two superstars. Also, in, uh, along with Shohei Otani, is who, a player who's probably the greatest player of his generation, a guy named Mike Trout. So the Angels have two superstars. But do you know the last time that the Angels made the playoffs? It was in 2014. Mike Trout's third year in the majors and four years before the Angels signed Shohei Otani. So these two superstars, the, some of the best players in the sport, have been together and they have never once made the playoffs. It's not about superstars. Well, maybe you think, you know, maybe it's not about having superstars, but it's about money. See, that's what makes baseball different than all the other sports. All the other sports have a salary cap, so there's a limit to how much money you can spend on players. But in baseball... You can spend as much money as you want to on players. So maybe that's the key to success, is just spending all the money in the world to get the best players to come in. Now, those of you that are Rangers fans, you know uh, that the Rangers have used that methodology over the last couple of off-seasons, and at least so far is proving to be successful. But this year, the New York Mets had the highest payroll in baseball. Opening day, it was projected to be over $252 million. New York Mets are currently in fourth place in their division. And at the trade deadline a couple of weeks ago, they traded off some of their best players because they were so bad. In fact, the Rangers were beneficiaries of that when they traded for Max Scherzer. It's not about money. The best organization over the last five years in Major League Baseball is probably the Tampa Bay Rays. And this year they have the 28th highest payroll at roughly 59 million dollars. Sometimes churches think, man, if we just had more money, we could have really cool stuff and we could have great programs and that's what makes a great church, but it's not about money. Team language is often used, obviously it's in sports, but it's often used in another uh, area in our culture as well, and that is in the area of business. It's really interesting to read business books and talk about and, and see their, their discussion on what makes a great team. I've read several of these business books that talk about team building in, in, in work and in business. And what you will not find in there, in any of those books, is you have to have a superstar. Now, it doesn't mean that talent and skills are not important. They are, but no one will say the key to success is having a superstar. The other thing that you will not find in any of those books is somebody saying, to have a successful team, you have to pay everyone at the top of the industry standard. That doesn't mean that paying people well is unimportant. It is important, but nobody says that. But over and over again in these business books, when we talk about building a great team, you will read things like this. A great team is one where everybody contributes, where there is a supportive environment, where there is a greater goal that draws people together and propels them forward. And every time I read those books, you know what I think about? I think about the church. Think about it. We have a greater goal. 
that should draw us together and propel us forward. It's the Great Commission. Jesus said, go make disciples. And so our goal, this greater goal that we have, is to introduce people to Jesus and help them to understand what life in Jesus is all about. In addition to that goal, we should exist in a supportive environment. There are 59 specific one another commands in the New Testament that determine how we relate to one another and how we support one another. And everyone should feel like they can contribute to those things. But sadly, that is often not the case in church today. Because many people view church as a consumer. They show up to consume religious goods and services that are provided by a church. And so as a result of that, people opt in and out of programs based on what they, their perceived need is at a given time. And then what makes a great church or a good church is one that meets the needs that they have. And so then, as a result of that, churches really function, and this is true across the board, they function according to what's referred to as the Pareto Principle, which is the, the rule of 80-20, or 20-80, depending on how you look at it. It's basically, it says this, that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And oftentimes, that is very, very true of churches in terms of volunteerism, serving in the church, and in, in the area of giving. But think about how different it would be if that wasn't the case, if it wasn't 20% doing 80%. But what would it be like if the church was a great team where everybody felt like they were contributing in a supportive environment where there is a greater goal that brings us together and propels us forward? Because I will tell you, that is the church. And so what I'm going to do over the next couple of weeks in this series is to really challenge each of us to get involved, to not sit on the sidelines and just be satisfied to sit and watch, but to get involved and join the team. And so this morning, I want to begin by talking about purpose. What is our purpose? So if you've got your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to the passage. We're actually just going to look at a couple of verses this morning, but I'll, I'll talk about the context a little bit. I'm only going to read two verses found in Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. So you've got a Bible, Acts 17, 26 and 27. So if you have a Bible, you need help finding the book of Acts. It's right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, which tell us the life story of Jesus. The book of Acts tells us the story of the growth and spread of the church. And so we're looking this morning at Acts 17, verses 26 and 27. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen as I read it. Or if you have the YouVersion Bible app on your phone, you can navigate your way to our live event. It's really easy to find. So if you open up the YouVersion app at the bottom on the right-hand corner is a button uh, for more on the next screen. About halfway down the screen, you'll see events. You click on that, and then ours should pop up first because it's geolocated. Um, and so you should be able to find that really easy. There's lots of helpful things um, in there in addition to the scripture notes, things like that. Let me read these verses. Acts 17 26 and 27. These are the words of the Apostle Paul, and I'll explain this in just a second. But he says this, From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries for where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each of us. I think those two verses are found in what is a really, really interesting section of scripture. So in this section, the apostle Paul 
had been ministering in the city of Athens, Greece. Athens, Greece was the center of civilization during the Greek Empire, which brought all kinds of uh, advancements in arts and literature, all kinds of things. While at this point in history, the Greek Empire had long since passed, Paul was living under the Roman Empire at the time, the city of Athens was still the place where everybody went to talk about philosophy. Now, Paul's purpose in going to Athens was bigger than philosophy. He wanted to tell people about Jesus, and so that's what he'd been doing in the city, telling people who Jesus was, what he did, how he had risen from the dead. And so there were some philosophers who heard Paul teaching, and they became really interested in this new philosophy that he was teaching. And so Paul was invited to come and speak at a place that was known as the Areopagus. The Areopagus was the place in the city of Athens where the philosophers would gather to exchange ideas. So they would talk about things like metaphysics and epistemology. If you don't know what those two things are, I'm not really sure that I know what they are either, but I know that philosophers talk about those things as they try to make sense out of life. And so they invited the Apostle Paul. They were curious about what he had been teaching, so they invited him to come. Well, there at the Areopagus, there were all of these statues dedicated to all of these different gods. And so all of the gods of Greek mythology had a statue that was represented there. Zeus, uh, Athena, Poseidon, you name it, there was a statue there. And in addition to that, there was also one more because they, didn't, they wanted to make sure that they didn't miss anyone. And so there was another statue that was dedicated to the unknown god. And so Paul knew that. And as he walked to the place where he stood speaking to all of these different philosophers, the way that I picture the story is this. Paul stood and said, men of Athens, as I stand before you today, I I do so in recognition of all of your knowledge and learning. As I walked in, I saw all of the statues, beautiful pieces of art that were dedicated to all of the gods. But then I noticed at the end of that line, there was that statue was dedicated to the unknown God. He said, today what I want to do is tell you about that one. He said, the God who made the world and everything in it, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made by human hands. He's not served by humans as though he needed anything because he gives life and breath to everything else. And this is where we want to focus on this morning. From one man, he made every nationality to live over the whole earth, here, pay attention to this, has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And the rest of the time that we have together this morning, I want to focus in specifically on what Paul said in the second half of verse 26, where it says he has determined their appointed times and the boundaries for where they live. You ever thought about that? That God had a purpose and a plan behind the time in which you live and the place where you live. God has a plan for us being alive when we are and living where we do. What I want you to know is this, you are called for such a time as this. 
that phrase for such a time as this. It actually comes from the book of Esther. We read about Esther's story in the Old Testament. And to make a long story as short as I possibly can, uh, Esther lived in a time, she found herself as the queen of Persia, living in a time known in Jewish history as the time of the exile. So she was Jewish, but at this time in, the, in history, there was no Israel, there was no Judah, they had already fallen, so there was no nation of Israel. And most of the people who were living around Israel, they had been uh, removed from their homeland and scattered across the empire in different regions. And Esther and her uncle Mordecai were two of those people. Well, one day, a man named Haman went to the king and said his idea was to get rid of all the Jewish people. He hated Jewish people. He was intent on genocide. And so he went to the king and said, hey, king, what do you think about this? And the king was like, I don't really care. Do whatever you want. It's fine with me. We'll, I'll you know, write an edict and we'll exterminate all of the Jews. And so Mordecai went to Esther and said, Esther, you have to do something about this. You've got to go to the king and tell him that he can't do that. There were at least two problems. One was no one knew that Esther was Jewish. She had been hiding her true identity. And number two is that Esther couldn't just go in front of the king, even though she was the queen. She couldn't just go into his presence if uninvited, because if she did that, there was a possibility that she could be put to death. But in effort to try to convince Esther, Mordecai said to her, listen, God has, he didn't use the word God, which is an interesting thing about the book of Esther, the name of God is never mentioned, but he said, you are where you are for such a time as this. And I remember hearing that story growing up in church, thinking to myself, man, like one day I want to be like Esther. I'd love to be used by God to do something significant for the benefit of other people for such a time as this. But God has appointed the time and the place where you live. You are called for such a time as this. Some of you might be thinking, though, wait a minute, I'm not really sure that I'm called to do anything. Maybe that's because you grew up the way that I did, and to be called to do something meant that you had a very specific experience in which God told you or led you, whatever the language is that you want to use, exactly what he wanted you to do. Part of the reason that that can be our expectation is because of stories that we read, where God shows up and there is some kind of very specific experience that leads somebody to do something, much like what we read in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 3, it's the call of Samuel. At this point, Samuel was just a young boy serving in the tabernacle. His job was to make sure that the candles never went out in the tabernacle. And so one night... Uh, Samuel was serving in the tabernacle, and he heard a voice, Samuel, Samuel. His assumption that, was, that it was Levi, the priest, who he was living with at the time, and so he went in to where Levi was laying down uh, asleep, and he went in, and he said, here I am, you called me. And I can only imagine what was going through Eli's mind at the time, because I just assume he was a lot like me and likes his sleep. And so he thought to himself, I don't know what's wrong with you, kid, but why are you in here? No, I didn't call your name. Go back and lay down. What happened again? Samuel, Samuel. So Samuel got up and went 
to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. And again, Eli's like, kid, please, leave me alone. Go back to bed. I did not call you. Happened again. The third time, Samuel, Samuel, Samuel goes into Eli and says, listen, I heard you calling for me. What is it that you want? And I don't know if Eli really believed this or if he just said this so that Samuel would do something different. But he said, listen, you've heard a voice three different times now. I didn't call you. It must be God. So the next time, if you hear the voice again so that you don't bother me, say this, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And so Samuel went back. And he heard the voice again, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And that's when God called him to be a prophet and told him pretty much exactly what he wanted him to do. And so sometimes that's what we think. We think, well, if I don't have that experience or a special, unique experience where God tells me what he wants me to do, then I must not be called to do anything and therefore I don't have to do anything. And so that's why often people in churches today view themselves as a consumer of religious goods and services. But that ignores so much of what we read throughout the New Testament. Because I would argue that the New Testament teaches us that everyone who's a follower of Jesus is called. It's the Great Commission. Go, make disciples. So our calling is to help people to know who Jesus is and to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus and why that's so significant. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The idea that you're not called to do something, it ignores Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do everyone who's a follower of Jesus has been created by God to do something. The idea that you're not called even ignores the fundamental call that was given to all humanity at the very beginning, which is to multiply image bearers. If you remember, those of, us, those of you who were here all the way back a couple of weeks before I left for sabbatical, I talked about this in a post-fall world. That is a disciple-making focus just as much as it is a procreative focus. God has called all of us to do something. God has established the times and the places that we live for a purpose. Verse 27 says, he did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. God established the times and places that we would live so that we would find him, and be brought into a relationship with him. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, once we've been brought into that relationship, then our purpose changes, it shifts focus, and now our responsibility is to help people to know God and follow God. That's what we've been called to. You know, sometimes I I wonder if this is not the case. Why don't people have more of these Because sometimes they do. People have these special experiences. But maybe the reason that God doesn't call us as much as he used to is because he left us a note and told us exactly what he wanted us to do so that we would never wonder whose voice was on the other end of the line. It's our responsibility. We've been called for a purpose to point people to Jesus, to help them to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so once you understand that, then you're probably wondering, okay, how do I specifically go about doing that? How do I know very specifically what I'm supposed to do? I mean, generally understand this, but how do I know the way in which I'm supposed to live that out every day? 
I love reading stories, books, watching movies, or maybe even watching television shows that have a narrator in them. Because the narrator gives us the, a broad perspective that helps make sense out of the different events that the characters go through as they go through them. One of my favorite shows growing up was the show The Wonder Years. So if you're around my age, you probably remember that show. Hopefully you remember it fondly. But it tells the story of Kevin Arnold, who was growing up just towards the end of the Vietnam War. And so it's told from the perspective of adult Kevin looking back at the experiences that he had as a teenager growing up. And it's adult Kevin who makes sense out of these formative experiences that he went through, even though he didn't understand all of what he was going through at the time. And so sometimes I think, man, it would be great to have the narrator's perspective on life. To understand specifically what I'm supposed to do in a given situation or what I'm supposed to learn when I go through a a, a given situation in my life. But you know what? We're just the characters. We're just trying to do the best we can to make our way through life. You know, the great thing is this. We know the narrator. In fact, we know the author of the story. And because we know the author of the story, there are times where we can be pretty sure that we are doing exactly what God wants us to do. Through the work of the Spirit of God, we begin to understand how God has equipped us. We'll talk more about that next week, those things that we're good at. And we are living out our purpose when we understand what it is that we're good at and taking our gifts and abilities and using them to point people to Jesus and to help them to understand what being a follower of Jesus is all about. That's our purpose. But God has appointed the times and the places where we live. You live where you live for a purpose. Now, I know you probably bought your house because you like the floor plan, had the right number of bedrooms or whatever. Maybe it was affordable, in the right area, close to work, far enough away from stuff. Whatever it is. But you know what? That's your perspective. That's not the narrator's perspective. And the narrator has a greater purpose in, in mind for you. And so the question is, how are you going to live out your purpose where you live? You think about this. You work where you work for a purpose. Now, I know you took your job because they offered it to you. Maybe it had good pay, good benefits. Maybe it was something that fit your strengths, something that you thought you would enjoy. But you know what? That's your perspective. That's not the narrator's perspective. You work where you work for a purpose. So my challenge for you is to think about how you can live out your purpose where you work. I want you to think about this. You are a part of this church for a purpose. Now, I know you. some of you came because thought the music was good, maybe you liked the preaching or the programs, maybe you came and then you came back because the first time that you came, you felt at home, and I understand all of that, but that's your perspective, it's not the narrator's perspective. So the challenge for you is this, how can you live out your purpose in this church? Because God's got a plan for you, to use your gifts and abilities 
to point people to Jesus and help them to understand what life in Jesus is all about. You can't just sit on the sidelines. You've got to get involved because here's what makes a great church. A great church is one where everyone feels like they're contributing in a supportive environment where there is a greater goal that brings us together and propels us forward. That's the church. And so I want you to get involved. Will you pray with me, Heavenly?